All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning that we can look into your word. I pray that you'd be with me as I seek to explain and overview the book of Acts. I praise you for all the work that you, have, that you did in the book of Acts and that you have done through the church. It's more than uh, any person could accomplish on their own, and we want to praise you and lift you up for the magnitude and the way that you have worked uh, in the world, um, and you leave us that legacy for in, the, in the book of Acts of how it all began. So we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, so far in our New Testament Sunday School class, we've spent um, almost all of our time looking at each of the four Gospels. So it's been a really rich time looking at the different ways that the Gospel writers present the life of Christ. Um, And today, we're going to consider the hinge from the Gospel story to the rest of the New Testament, which is the epistles and then the book of Revelation. So that hinge is the book of Acts, and actually deserves some careful attention For while there are four Gospels, and there are numerous epistles, there's only one book of Acts. There's only one account of the history of the church. We can pick up some historical details from some of the epistles, but really, Acts is the one standalone history of the origins of the church, and there's nothing else like it in the New Testament. Acts is a historical account of the beginning of the church, and as it describes the growth of the church... It gives validation to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the mission that he left to his followers. And so to understand the message of Acts, we need to look at some of the details, the geography, the history. We'll do that briefly. Mainly we're wanting to look at um, the main content of the book of Acts, what it teaches us today. So this may be a little bit more on some details of geography, history, things like that, so that we can provide the backdrop for the history of the New Testament and the events that happen, but we're still wanting to hone in on the message of the book of Acts. So I want to start with some foundational truths, and they're foundational, but they're actually going to take up about half of our time today, um, so they're probably a little bit more than foundational. First is the authorship of the book of Acts, and that is uh, Luke. So We know that Luke wrote the book of Acts from the introduction, which is very similar to the introduction to the gospel of Luke. The first two verses say, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And it's very similar to the introduction of Luke, which also mentions Theophilus as the recipient. And as J.D. introduced in the book of Luke, um, there's a couple reasons that we know that Luke is the author. First is in the book of Acts, there's several parts of the story where the author switches from the third person, they did all these things, to the first person, we did all these things. And we see that in chapter 16, and then from chapter 20 to the end of the book. And if you compare the narrative of Acts with the places in the epistles where different people are mentioned at different locations, the only person, once you eliminate everyone who can't fit, the only person that fits is Luke. And you can also see how Luke and Acts fit together. It really makes sense that they were written by the same author because as Luke 24 ends with the ascension of Christ, that's exactly where Acts begins. There's actually a little bit of overlap in the story where both tell the narrative of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, in our Bibles, the two books, Luke and Acts, 
are separated by the Gospel of John, in reality, they're kind of just two halves of the same book. It's one really long story of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So Luke tells the story of Jesus' ministry on earth, where Acts tells the story of Jesus' ministry from heaven. Just because Jesus is not physically on earth during the book of Acts doesn't mean it's not about him. He's actually the main character in Acts, and he is working in the world through his church and through his spirit. So I won't go too much further into Luke since we already have kind of a sketch from the Gospel of Luke. He was a doctor who traveled with Paul. Um, But it is important to emphasize that though he was not an apostle, he spent a great deal of time with the apostles. And he labored over writing a factually correct record of the growth of the church. So he, he had the, uh, the validation of being with the apostles on the front line, as well as spending time with those apostles who were uh, firsthand experiencers of the things that happened. So we should have no doubts of the inspiration or inerrancy of either Luke or Acts due to Luke's diligent research and his time with the apostles. And we may even have a stronger reason to see the validity of Acts because Luke was actually there for portions of it. So we shouldn't doubt either one, but especially the fact that Luke was there, he saw these things firsthand, leaves no room to doubt the validity of the truth of Acts. Now because Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome, it's almost certain that Luke wrote Acts during that imprisonment. Because Paul was released after he was able to see Caesar, and he uh, ministered and traveled about for a couple more years. So the fact that Luke doesn't include that probably shows that he had finished Acts before that happened. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense why he wouldn't include that portion of Paul's ministry. And so we can be fairly confident that Acts was written by about 60 A.D., while Paul was in prison at Rome. So this is a few years before Paul's ministry had ended, but the majority of the explosive growth of the church had already been instituted by that point. And so in all, Acts covers a period of about 33 years, from the ascension of Christ until AD 60, when Paul is in prison. So that's the authorship. Next, I want to mention the general outline. And... We see the general outline uh, right in the text. It's not like he's a college student writing a paper and inserting his outline, but we can see it implicitly in Acts 1.8. There's a great deal of foreshadowing in these first couple verses. If you start in verse 4, Jesus tells his disciples that they would receive the Holy Spirit as he had promised in the upper room not long before. And verses 4 and 5 say, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, But to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's foreshadowing to what's going to happen in chapter 2, and then the work of the Spirit throughout the book of Acts in the church. And then next, in verses 7 and 8, as the disciples connect the dots that Jesus is the Messiah, they wonder if he is going to establish the kingdom that has been promised to the nation of Israel. They say, okay, this is the Messiah. He's the son of David. This means the kingdom is coming, right? He's going to establish it right now. He's been resurrected from the dead. Everything's lining up. And so they ask in verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And it's not necessarily a bad question to ask, but Jesus redirects it. 
In verse 7, he says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And notice, he doesn't say, no, I'm not establishing the kingdom. He says, you don't get to know when I'm establishing it. And he's not going to establish the kingdom in its full effect at that moment, but he's laying the groundwork in the church. And more importantly, he's telling them, your concern shouldn't be when the kingdom is going to happen. Your concern needs to be the mission that I'm about to give you. And he gives them that in verse 8. And this is the outline for the book of Acts. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So those four locations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, provide the general outline for the events in the book of Acts. Uh, the mission of the disciples is to take the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And their goal is to see the gospel proclaimed. And just as Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit foreshadows his work throughout the book, so also this command to proclaim the gospel foreshadows the work of the church throughout the book. And the geographical progression from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth is mirrored exactly in how the chapters play out. So, by the way, this is just a side note on the book of Acts. As you're reading through Acts, probably nearly all, if not all, of the locations are going to be foreign to you. Uh, they may be called different things now. You may know the geography of Turkey or Greece or Syria very well, and they're still different locations. So as you read Acts, it's really helpful to read with a map, which you can find in the back of your Bible. Um, if you're on your phone, there's probably resources, but it's nice to have that map um, in your physical Bible to kind of see. So... When Jesus says, I want you to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, you can see it go on this map up here. It kind of is the, uh, oh, my pointer's not working. Um, you see Jerusalem there in that top right corner. Judea is the region Jerusalem is in, so it's broadening a little bit. Samaria is just north of that. And in Samaria, you're getting into the kind of the half-breed Jews, where they had intermarried with Gentile nations. And so it's a step further away from uh, the Jewish nation. And then once you get out of Samaria, you look and you see Syria, you see uh, Turkey, which is Asia, Galatia, Cilicia, all those places. You get over into Greece, Italy. That's the ends of the earth. And so as you look through the book of Acts, you see the gospel going in that trajectory. In chapters 1 through 7, we see the growth of the church in Jerusalem. And it's primarily focused on the apostles staying in Jerusalem and ministering to the Jews who were there. Then when Saul begins to persecute the church in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of, where do you think? Judea and Samaria. So this is the transition point where the gospel is going beyond Jerusalem, and it's interesting that it's being spread by persecution. God is actually using the persecution of the church to expand the church and to, to grow the gospel. So then chapters 8 through 12 describe the growth of the church in Judea and Samaria. Then from chapter 13 to the end of the book, which is chapter 28, you see Paul and others traveling to the ends of the earth. So Paul goes throughout Turkey. He goes throughout Greece. He goes to Italy. And even beyond the book of Acts, Paul actually gets to Spain. 
And this is truly the gospel going out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it's also interesting to look back into the book of Luke, because Luke is actually inverted. See, in Luke chapter 9, uh, as Jesus comes to the end of his uh, ministry before the cross, there's a verse uh, near the end of chapter 9 that says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And from that point in Luke 9, Jesus makes a beeline for Jerusalem in order to accomplish the events of the crucifixion, of the Passion Week and the resurrection. So Luke, everything is heading towards Jerusalem. And then in Acts, everything is heading away from Jerusalem. It's almost as if there's an author who's intentionally organizing this material in a really specific way. It's amazing. Now, another foundational truth to keep in mind as you look at the outline here is the transitional nature of the book of Acts. Uh, We see this specifically in how the book of Acts affects the people of Israel. There's a very big transition going on in Acts. And if you remember, I'm very bad at this, at importing things back into the book of Acts that shouldn't be there, but Acts begins very squarely in the Old Covenant era. The book of Acts starts essentially in the Old Testament time. And so all the things that are happening, you need to remember them against the backdrop of an Old Testament mindset. That's why some of the things that happen are so extreme, so different, because things are changing, and it's really causing a stir. The Jewish people had lived for nearly 1,500 years under the Mosaic Covenant, but the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ had instituted the New Covenant. And so Acts is very much a transition from the Old Covenant to the new covenant. And you can see the specific promises of the new covenant fleshed out in Acts. So the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 would bring, among other things, forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and a community where everyone knew God. And those were all very different than the promises of the old covenant. So in Acts, people had their sins forgiven when they come to Christ in faith and repentance, The Holy Spirit indwells believers, and the community where everyone knows the Lord begins in the church. You see this transition very specifically into the New Covenant. But the transition between the Old and New Covenant was not quick, and it was not easy. It was very difficult, and this transition is really what created most of the turmoil uh, for the church. Uh, much, if not all, of the persecution that the church faces is actually from the Jewish people who are pushing back on uh, things that the new covenant is changing or wanting them to change. So first, uh, they're pushing back on the claim that Jesus had actually risen from the dead and that Jesus was the Messiah. So that's what the apostles were imprisoned for in chapters 4 and 5 in Acts. That's what Stephen was stoned for in chapter 7. That's why Paul was persecuting the church in chapters 8 and 9. This is a big sticking point for the Jewish people, that Jesus was actually the Messiah. And as the apostles point out many times, Jesus, whom you crucified, is the Messiah. That was a tough pill to swallow for many of the people of Israel. But one of the other, and this may actually be a a bigger sticking point for the people of Israel, and you see this throughout the rest of the book, uh, from like chapter 13, or probably from chapter 10 on, is that the new covenant includes the Gentiles. This was a massive issue in the book of Acts. 
And if you're like me, that doesn't stand out as something that should be an issue. Because we're coming from the standpoint of 1,900 years where Gentiles have been included in the New Covenant. But remember, the Jewish people did not have that mindset. This was something totally foreign to them. The Mosaic Covenant was with the people of Israel, who had descended from those who were at Mount Sinai to receive the law. And those people were descended from Abraham, with whom God had made the Abrahamic Covenant. And they had the Davidic Covenant. They had all of these covenants that were made with the ethnic people of Israel. So when the new covenant was offered, not just to Jews, but to anyone who believed, they opposed it fiercely. This was something new, and they didn't really like it. They felt like they were betraying their heritage. Sadly, they had forgotten the words of Isaiah 49, verse 6, which, in which God said, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. There were promises in the Old Testament that pointed to the Jews being included, but many of the people in the time of Acts had their eyes blinded and their hearts hardened, so they didn't understand that truth. So one of the major themes of Acts is how the gospel goes to everyone, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, but it goes to the Gentile, and that's very different. So in Acts, you see magicians come to faith. You see royal officials and prominent businesswomen, high-ranking military officials. You see Greek philosophers, people who are still following John the Baptist. You see people from every walk of life coming to faith because the gospel is for everyone. And Acts demonstrates that radically. It doesn't exclude any ethnicity or background. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of his new covenant is consistently preached to the Jew first in Acts. The church began with Jewish people who were familiar with God's promises. So they were people who knew the story of the Bible, and all they needed was Jesus as the Messiah to plug in. But then, or sorry, so what that meant was that the church began primarily as a Jewish community. The church was very Jewish in its origins, and you see that through the first couple chapters. But then as they meet more opposition from other Jews, and they start going to the Gentiles as well, by the end of Acts, the church is actually a predominantly Gentile church. And that's not to say that you know, it should matter what the ethnicity is, but it's interesting. Because you know, in one sense, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave or free, we're all one in Christ. But in another sense, it's very important to see that this new covenant is for all people. It's not just for the Jew, but it's also for the Gentile. And this also doesn't mean that God is done with Israel. His promises to Israel still apply. The kingdom that the disciples were looking for is still going to come. But what's different is that now the Gentiles are included in those promises. The promises aren't nullified and given to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are included in those promises. And so that was very difficult for the people to accept. So as you read through the book of Acts and you see all these um, difficulties when it comes to Gentiles, understand the perspective they were coming from and kind of keep your uh, ears up for that. Now, because the book of Acts is such a transitional book, one thing to remember about a lot of the things that happen is that the events are primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. So there's a lot of things that happen in the book of Acts that are not meant for us to emulate and use as an example. Some are. We can still learn from things, and we'll get to that in a second. But just because something is in the book of Acts it doesn't necessarily mean 
that we should be doing the same thing today. Just like something that's in the book of Leviticus is not necessarily for us today. We need to look at it through the lens of all of Scripture to understand uh, how we should live. And we should be primarily building our doctrine, our systems of understanding the Bible, from the epistles, where the apostles laid out very clearly and directly teaching for the church. So the book of Acts, everything that happened is true, but it's not necessarily meant to be an example for us. The book of Acts contains descriptions of many dramatic events, like speaking in tongues or casting out demons, healing illnesses and raising people from the dead. But just because those things are included doesn't mean that you need to go out and try to do the same things today. Now, the reason that there were so many signs and wonders and miracles in the book of Acts is because of the transition that was taking place. Because God was establishing something new, something so radical, he validated what he was doing by these miraculous signs. He was showing very clearly that the growth of the church was from God. And he was showing that the apostles, these men he had chosen to lead the church, were endorsed by God. And especially as the gospel expanded throughout the world and then came to new lands and new people, God met each new people group, each new area, with signs and wonders to validate that message. So just take the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as an example. Uh, In the book of Acts, there's four major records of the Holy Spirit coming on people. And it's usually accompanied with uh, speaking in tongues. The one instance that isn't is accompanied by miracles and signs and wonders. So each event is linked to a different people group or region. And the reason there's all these signs and wonders, speaking in tongues accompanying it, is to show that this is a real thing. These people are actually being included into the new covenant. So first, in Acts 2... Uh, At Pentecost, speaking in tongues accompanies a massive uh, conversion of Jewish people. And this is the first time that the Spirit has indwelt the community of God. And it happens first with the Jews. Next, in Acts 8, the Spirit indwells people in Samaria. Remember our next step in the progression. When Philip lays his hands on them. And this is a big deal because the Samaritans were the Jewish half-breeds that were looked down on by the true Israelites. Think about the woman at the well in John 4 or the Good Samaritan. These are people that uh, were kind of second-rate citizens, and yet the Spirit has now come to them. And so that's accompanied by signs and wonders. Then Acts 10 shows the Spirit coming upon Gentiles. And again, this indwelling of the Spirit is also accompanied by speaking in tongues to show that, yeah, the new covenant is for the Gentiles also. And then lastly, in Acts 19, Paul lays his hands on some of the disciples of John the Baptist who were yet to hear that Jesus is actually the one that John was pointing forwards to. And so this shows that the gospel has come for Old Testament saints who have their hope in the promises of God. These promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, these times that the Spirit is indwelling people and they're speaking in tongues and doing miracles that these are descriptive events and not prescriptive. And it's important so that we don't go out today and feel the need to do these same types of things. Um, if, If we were going to view these as examples, then any of us who became believers and did not have hands laid on us to receive the Spirit, I think that would call into question our conversion. That's something that we would need to do if, if this is for us today. Or 
Um, as we go out and share the gospel, we would need to seek to be performing miracles and signs and healings. Um, and someone who doesn't speak in tongues following their conversion, that would call into question their actual faith. So the reason we don't see that is because of the rest of the teaching in the epistles, which tells us that the Spirit indwells all believers. It doesn't have to come through the laying on of hands. It doesn't have to come with speaking in tongues. But that the Spirit indwells all believers. Um, and that speaking in tongues, while it was a gift for the church during this time, is not necessarily something for every believer to show that they're actually converted. So not everything in Acts is commanded for us to carry out, but we can learn a great deal from Acts to apply into our own lives. So just because portions of Acts are descriptive rather than prescriptive, that doesn't mean that we should just put it on the shelf and say, okay, this is a unique history, but it doesn't apply to my life at all. Um, Specifically, we can learn a great deal from the theme of Acts, which is the expansion of the gospel. This is really the big idea of Acts, seeing the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. Or you can look at the church expanding to the ends of the earth. Uh, The message of Jesus going into the world. And there's several important aspects of that expansion that are helpful to remember. I think I have five of these, if you're going to write them down in your notes. Uh, First, the spread of the gospel depends on the sovereignty of God. The spread of the gospel depends on the sovereignty of God. All throughout Acts, you see God's sovereign hand at work. The confidence of the apostles comes from Jesus' promise to be with them until the end of the age. That was in the Great Commission. And their ability to do anything in the book of Acts comes from the Holy Spirit, who is empowering them, giving them words to say, and accomplishing the work of their ministry. And God supernaturally removes barriers to the gospel, and he even uses persecution to grow his church. These are all the marks of a sovereign God who is the cause of this expansion in the gospel. And this is still true today. God is still sovereign, and he still uses similar means to accomplish his purpose. The spread of the gospel depends on the sovereignty of God. The second, the spread of the gospel is accomplished through believers. It's accomplished through believers. God is clearly sovereign throughout Acts, but he uses the church to spread the gospel. He didn't cause everyone in the world to suddenly become aware that Jesus was the Messiah. He used the human means of people to go out and deliver that message. And it's interesting to note that with all of the miracles, with all of the unique things that happen in Acts, every single person who becomes a believer in Christ does so as a result of someone sharing the gospel with them. So even though there's all of these miracles that are not at work today in the same way, the means of salvation are still the same. Hearing the gospel, believing in Christ, and repenting of your sins. So God is still using the ordinary means of believers proclaiming the gospel to spread the gospel throughout the world. This shows that we are vital to the mission of the of the gospel. We can't sit on the sidelines. It's also worth mentioning that the spread of the gospel was accompanied by joyful suffering. Not just suffering, but joyful suffering. Um, the believers did not have a televangelism ministry where they got to sit back in the comfort of Jerusalem and kind of broadcast the gospel to the world. They had to go out into many times hostile crowds and deliver the message. 
And this brought on persecution and imprisonment and at times even death. And yet the people suffered joyfully. In Acts 5.41, after some of the apostles get out of prison, they even say, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's just amazing. That they didn't just look at suffering as something they had to get through, but they rejoiced that they could suffer for the proclamation of the gospel. It stands out to me that they enjoyed that joyfully. But third, the gospel is spread by proclaiming the word of God. That's the third aspect of this theme. That the gospel is spread by proclaiming the word of God. Acts is a book that is filled with Old Testament quotations. Scripture was really the foundation for all that the church did. And it was the cornerstone of their gospel message. So when Paul preached to the crowd at Pentecost, to the thousands of people gathered there, the, sorry, he quoted from Joel and he quoted from the Psalms. And then in chapter 3, he quotes from Genesis and Deuteronomy. Stephen overviews the history of the Hebrew people in chapter 7. And then Philip interprets Isaiah 53 to the Ethiopian eunuch. You see this over and over and over. Nearly every chapter has a quotation from the Old Testament. And it shows that the people of Acts, the believers, used the word of God as the foundation of their message. The proclamation of the gospel in Acts is based in Scripture, and this has to be true for us as well. Then fourth, the gospel that spread centered on Jesus and his resurrection. Their gospel centered on Jesus and his resurrection. So when the apostles preached, their goal was to convince their audience that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Much of their sermons have to do with showing from Scripture, especially to the Jews who had this framework, that Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for. And not just that he was the Messiah, but that he had actually resurrected from the dead. Because I think all of the Jews knew that Jesus had been killed. But they hadn't believed that he actually had raised from the dead. Because that would prove that he was the Messiah. That he had overcome death. And Peter actually accuses his audience in chapters 2 and 3 of being responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. But then testifies that he himself was a witness to his resurrection. And that was very influential to the crowd's response in faith and repentance. And so this is the message of the gospel throughout the book of Acts, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Savior, and that he has resurrected from the dead to accomplish that salvation. And then fifth, I think this is my last observation about the theme, the gospel that spread demanded a response of faith and repentance. So as the apostles went out and sought to convince people that Jesus was the Messiah, they didn't just want them to believe that. They wanted to bring them to a response of faith and repentance. And especially in the book of Acts, you see the theme of repentance, which makes sense because in Luke 24, when, Jesus, or when Luke records Jesus' great commission to them, he emphasizes that they will go out to preach repentance to the world. He specifies repentance. And so in the book of Acts, you see Paul and Peter calling people to repentance after they've preached the gospel message, after they preach the good news about Christ, they don't just let it sit there. But they demand a response from the people. And there are many different responses to the gospel in the book of Acts. Some believe and repent of their sins. Others killed the messenger. 
Some scoffed at the gospel, but others wanted to hear more. And so regardless of the response, though, the first century believers in Acts continued to faithfully proclaim the gospel and seek a response of faith and repentance. And that is a pattern for us today as well. So that is a 35-minute background. Now we have 10 minutes to go through the book. So we're just going to go at a very high level. And I, I chose to focus mainly on those background materials so you can read the book of Acts on your own. There's far too many stories that flesh out how the church grew that we wouldn't be able to get into it anyway, even with 45 minutes. So we're going to hit the highlights, but hopefully you're able to take these truths of kind of how to read the book of Acts and use them on your own. So at the beginning of Acts, uh, after Jesus ascends into heaven, those who had seen Christ resurrected and had believed gathered together in prayer. There were about 120 believers in all. And by the way, as you read through the book of Acts and see how the church grows, and even look at the church today, (coughs) it's amazing to see that it started with 120 people. At its beginning, there was 120 people. But they they didn't stay 120 for long. Um, because these believers were staying in Jerusalem, as Christ had said, stay in, stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And as they were gathered together in the same place for the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So it says in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is what Christ had promised when he said that the Spirit would come. The Holy Spirit descended on the believers and indwelt them. And they all spoke in other tongues that they didn't know before as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it's important to note that there's no indication that the Spirit left them after Pentecost. This was not like the Old Testament where it indwelt the person for a time and then left. This was a sign of entrance into the new covenant, that the Spirit would be with them. Now, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost marks the establishment of the church. While people were saved by grace through faith before this, this is where the new covenant community of the church is established, marked by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is a significant step in the transition to the new covenant. And then as the Spirit comes on, it's not just marking the establishment of the church, but it's also giving them an opportunity to share with the Jews in Jerusalem. Because we can't read the whole list, but there's, there are Jews from many different nations staying in Jerusalem who all speak different tongues. And when I showed that map earlier of all the places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, you could fill that map up essentially with all the different locations of these people that are in Jerusalem. And so as the Spirit gives them these new tongues, the people hear them in their own language. So the speaking in tongues isn't a language that no one knows. It's languages that are actually spoken in the world. And it says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So these apostles and these believers were proclaiming the gospel in these tongues they didn't know through the work of the Spirit. And As many of them are very confused, they accuse them of being drunk at 9 a.m., which that would be a lot of people drunk that early. Peter says, no, we're not drunk. Here's what's going on. And he explains from Joel chapter 2 what is happening. And in Joel 2, there's a prophecy that says, 
God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he goes on and talks about these things that are going to happen in the end times, on the day of the Lord, to prepare for the coming uh, of the end. And Paul is essentially saying the mark of salvation coming. I I should read the last verse in the uh, portion he quotes from Joel. It says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there are all of these signs and wonders that are going to happen, Joel says, and they mark this time when people who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul, Peter is essentially saying this great sign that you're seeing, it's foreshadowing the fact that, or it's not foreshadowing, it's pointing to the fact that this salvation has come. That Lord that he says, all who call on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus Christ, who you crucified. And now the opportunity has come to you where you can call on him and be saved. So Peter's not saying that every single element in that prophecy from Joel is happening right then. The, the sun wasn't darkened, the moon wasn't turned to blood. The, these are things that are going to happen. But Peter's using this prophecy, prophecy to say the time of salvation has come and it's being marked by these miraculous signs and wonders. And at that point, thousands of people come to faith. Because they see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies about the Messiah that they have been waiting for. So they call on the Lord, Jesus Christ, and they are saved. And it's, it's cool to see throughout the book of Acts, these little notes, often at the end of uh, portions of narrative, that speak about the growth of the church. Uh, verse 47 in chapter 2 says that the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. And chapter 4, verse 4, says that by that point, about 5,000 men had believed. In 514, multitudes of men and women believed. And we see updates in chapter 6 and 9 and 11 and 12 and 19. And Luke is basically saying the church is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's growing. And that points to the sovereignty of God and the faithful proclamation of the gospel by the church. So Pentecost is hugely important to the book of Acts uh, because that is really the establishment of the church and the first big wave of conversions. Then from chapters 3 till 6, we see the apostles proclaiming the word of God in Jerusalem. And they're arrested multiple times by the Jews, but their response to the, the cease and desist order is, we must obey God rather than men. And again, they're joyfully suffering for the sake of of the gospel. They really embraced persecution and counted it as a privilege. So in chapter 7, we have an important event because Stephen is stoned, again, for proclaiming the gospel. And that's important because his stoning introduces us to the character Saul, who begins persecuting the church. And as we mentioned before, that persecution really actually helps the church get from Jerusalem further out. In chapter 8, we see the stories of Philip and others who are going throughout Judea and Samaria as a result of this persecution and proclaiming the gospel. Then chapter 9 describes the conversion of Saul, who had been leading the persecution, and now he is working for the church. And this is one of the most clear examples of God's sovereignty in the book of Acts, that Paul, who was the leading persecutor, is now a believer of the people he was persecuting. Uh, Chapters 10 and 11 are also very important in the book of Acts because they tell the story of the gospel going to the Gentiles. 
So this is when Peter sees the vision of the sheet with all these unclean meats coming down. And God says, take and eat. Peter says, no, I don't want to eat that. That would be disobeying the law. And God says something very interesting. He says, what God has made clean, do not make common. And this applied to more than just the food, because soon after this, Peter met with someone named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, who was a, a, a military official, and Acts says he was someone who feared God. And God brought Peter to Cornelius and was showing him that the new covenant was for the Gentiles as well. And so he's showing him that God has called the Gentiles clean, and they have a place in the new covenant. Now, this causes some stir with the other people in the church, but Peter explains what has happened, and the church as a whole at that point accepts the Gentiles into the new covenant. And again, a lot of that is helped by the fact that they received the Spirit. That's kind of the clincher for the Jews in the church. They said, oh, they have the Spirit? Wow, they must really be in. This is great. And so that shows how important that sign was. Now, chapter 12 is the last chapter that really concerns Peter, because from chapters 13 to 28, we get to see the missionary journeys of Paul. Now, I have maps for all of his journeys. We're not going to be able to go through them very much at all, but you should have these maps in your Bible. Um, In chapters 13 and 14, we see Paul go from Antioch through some of the portions of Turkey before coming back uh, after he's established his ministry. And it's interesting in these places, he's going throughout the region of Galatia. That's an important one because he writes a book to them later. And what I love about these stories is he goes to Iconium, and then he goes to Lystra. And when he gets to Lystra, people, Jews from Iconium, who had opposed him, go there and stone him. And they leave him for dead. He ends up surviving, goes to Derby, then comes back to Lystra and back to Iconium, even though he's probably meeting up with people who have attempted to kill him. And yet he's doing that in order to strengthen the church there. Because Paul wasn't just going and converting people and just leaving them to fend for themselves. He was really caring for the establishment of the church. So like I said, I wish we could spend more time on this, but you should have this in your Bibles. Uh, After Paul returns to Jerusalem, there's actually a controversy over whether Gentiles need to keep the law. So they have the Jerusalem Council, where they establish and determine that since the Gentiles have been accepted into the new covenant, without God necessitating they keep any of the law, they've already received the Spirit, they say, I don't think we could hold them to a higher standard than God can. And that's really important to see the church establishing that Gentiles are full members of the new covenant. I wish we could go into that more, but we're racing on time here. Uh, In Paul's second missionary journey, he goes back to the same churches he established in Galatia, and then heads to Greece, where he shares the gospel and establishes churches in Athens and Corinth, in Philippi, in Thessalonica. Again, several places where he will later write letters to the church there. Then he returns back to Jerusalem, and once he gets back uh, in Jerusalem, he departs on his third missionary journey, where he visits many of the same places, but what's significant about the third journey is he spends a large amount of time in Ephesus. Uh, He spends almost three years in Ephesus. And I think some of the reason why Paul spent more time in one place than another is actually from something in in, uh, 1810, when Paul is in Corinth, God says to him, I have more people in this city, which is really showing that God had his sovereign hand at work in Paul's missionary journey, 
And that was a reason for Paul to stay certain places and to share the gospel. That's just an interesting tidbit to show that the election of God, God's election of people, is actually an impetus for evangelism. That Paul stayed there because God had people still to be saved. Um, it wasn't a detriment. So that's a, that's a side note. But anyway, after this third journey, Paul returns to Jerusalem and runs into more problems with the Jewish people. They falsely accuse him of degrading the temple. Uh, and so from chapters 21 through the end of the book, he's in prison defending himself. But he leverages that to actually get to Rome. Paul wants to get to Rome to have a, an audience with Caesar and to share the gospel in the capital of the empire. And he eventually gets there, and it's from Rome when he's in prison that he actually writes the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. He accomplishes a lot of work in prison there, which is also where Luke probably finished Luke and the book of Acts. And it's interesting how the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison there. The last two verses say, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And I don't know if, if I was in prison paying for my own room, I don't think I would say that I could proclaim the gospel without any hindrance. That seems an odd choice of words. But for Paul, it truly was without hindrance because of what he said in 2 Timothy 2.9, that the word of God was not bound. And as we said, he accomplished a great deal of ministry to these other churches in uh, Macedonia and Turkey. He shared the gospel with the guards with him, we know from Philippians. And he was able to accomplish a great deal of ministry, even from prison. Which, again, is just another testament to the attitude that they had about joyfully suffering and sharing the gospel. So, from the book of Acts, I hope that you come away with a little bit of a backdrop for the New Testament. We weren't able to get into as much of the backdrop as I wanted. But more than that, I hope you come away with a desire to join into that same ministry that the people in Acts had. God is still sovereign. We're still a part of the Great Commission. God's word is still able to bring people to salvation through faith in Christ. And we are still called to joyfully endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so in the power of the Holy Spirit, let's join in taking this mission to the ends of the earth. All right, you're dismissed.